0: Luther, and though uh, the idea is older than Luther, he's a good representation of the idea. Uh, Martin Luther said, our Jerusalem is the church, and our temple is Christ. Wheresoever Christ is preached and the sacraments are duly administered, there we are sure God dwells, and there is our temple, our tabernacle, our cherubim, and our mercy seat, for there God is present with us by his word." So tonight, we will rejoice to be together uh, and our feet standing in Jerusalem as we read together Psalm 122. And as we have been recently, won't you stand again with me as we give attention to the reading and the hearing of God's Word. Please join me in prayer before we read this. O gracious Lord, we pray that you would uh, give us hearts and minds to receive your truth. Help us to understand what it is that you would have us to know. Not just about the new Jerusalem, but about your Savior, our great King, great David's greater Son. Help us to rejoice in our Savior. Help us to rejoice to be together within your gates, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's Word as we find it in Psalm 122. This is a song of ascent of David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you, Peace be within your walls, and security within your towers. For my brothers' and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. You may be seated. 1525, uh, Wolfgang Schuch was sentenced to death by burning. 1525 was very early. It was only uh, eight years into the Protestant Reformation. It was only four years after Luther's stand at the Diet of Worms, and Wolfgang, like Luther, was a priest. He'd been assigned to the city of St. Hippolyte in the borderlands between France and Germany. Along with many other priests, he had become convinced of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And Schuck began preaching free salvation to the people of his parish, and it was received gladly, enthusiastically. So enthusiastically, in fact, that Rome sent word to the Duke of, L- of Lorraine and asked him to step in to intervene and to reclaim the city of St. Hippolyte for the Pope. Well, in an attempt... To save his flock from a violent reclamation, Shuk surrendered himself to church authorities. It did not save the town, by the way, and it did not save Shuk. He was imprisoned for about a year and treated cruelly. He was given chance after chance to recant the teachings of the Reformation, and when he refused, his fate was sealed. In May of 1525, his sentence was read, that Shuk should be tied to a stake and burned. And witnesses said that at the pronouncement, Wolfgang Shuk broke out into song. Laetatus sum in his quae dicta suntumihi, in domum domini ibimus. I was glad, he sang, when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Psalm 120 is a homesick hymn. And 121 is a traveler's tune, Then Psalm 122 expresses the joy of pilgrims coming home. For believers uh, in the church in the Old Covenant, this song culminated their journey, getting now within the gates of Jerusalem as they went up to gather and to celebrate the feasts of the Lord year by year. For believers now, for Christians, it marks the passing of another week. We gather with other believers and we come and give thanks to the Lord who is our peace. And for believers throughout church history in the Old and the New Testament, this song anticipates the joy of entering into the gates of the heavenly city whose designer and builder is God. So Psalm 122 is a homecoming hymn. It's a song that celebrates our citizenship in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And it's a tune that resounds with three notes. The first note is a note of joy. You hear that in verse one I was glad. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Now, in this first verse, in in all of these verses really, David is presenting himself in the position of a worshiper. David was a worshiper, of course, but he wasn't any ordinary worshiper, David was the king. David was the chosen man, the protector of Israel. He was the mighty man, the warrior from his youth. He was the man that the Lord had taken from the sheepfold into the throne room. He had received glory after glory, grace upon grace from the Lord his God. And where he begins is with the grace and the gladness that was the common possession of the lowest peasant in Israel. Here at the beginning, he doesn't zero in on what a joy it is to be God's anointed king. He zeroes in on what a joy it is to be one of God's worshipers. It was the joy of worship. Shared by every Israelite, shared by every believer. It was the joy of standing in God's presence, surrounded by, by God's people, and singing God's praises. And so every year, three times a year at least, at least in theory, Three times a year, every Jew would turn to his fellow, or her fellow, and they would say, it's time. Put down your loom. Lay aside your sickle. Put down your tools. It's time to go up to the house of the Lord. And they would begin their trek up to Passover, up to Pentecost, and up to the Feast of Booths. And they traveled with this anticipation up to the house of the Lord, and it didn't matter at those times how poor you were. It didn't matter if there was work to be done. It didn't matter if you were a landowner, if you were a day laborer. It didn't matter if you were another Hebrew slave who was counting the years until that Jubilee shofar signaled your freedom. You went up if you were a part of God's people. And you went up because, as verse tells us, that is what was decreed for Israel. It was a divine command that God's saints would gather together. So you notice the pronouns in this passage. Psalm 120 was, woe is me. Psalm 121 was, the Lord your keeper. Psalm 122 is, us and ours. It's God's corporate people, his gathered assembly. It is the comfort of gathered worship. And it was decreed, says David. It was the command of Deuteronomy chapter 12. When you go into the land of promise, says verse 5, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there, and there you shall go. Verse 7, and there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households. That was what Jerusalem meant for the people of God. It was the place where God's name and his habitation were. It was where the Lord commanded weary people to come away from their labors and to feast and to celebrate, and to give thanks to the glory of the Lord for his goodness. And the key word in that decree in Deuteronomy is rejoice. It shows up two more times in that same chapter, in amongst all of the details about who can eat which sacrifice and where, and how to care for the Levites that are scattered throughout the land. It tells us again in verse 12, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. It tells us again in verse 18, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. There's an interesting concept. The scripture speaks of worship as something commanded and as something delightful. It's something you have to do, and it's something that you can't get enough of. It's a paradox. Our mental filing systems have completely separate archives for the things that we have to do and the things that we want to do, and there are whole groups of people, masses of them out there, punching time cards and getting through the week just to get to the things that they want to do. We even have a cliche that summarizes this unattainable holy grail of combining duty and delight. Somebody says, you know, if you get yourself a job you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life. And we roll our eyes, as we should, because we know that not even the best job is like that. Even if you were the boss of you, you would find something to complain about at some time, and there would still be some drudgery. And so we remain with these two separate categories, and then we turn to the Bible, and it says worship is something you have to do. And by the way, it's something that you will love doing if you're doing it well. Verse 4 says that going up to God's house was a duty. Verse 1 says it was delightful. And that's what Jerusalem embodied for God's people. It was the place where obedience became enjoyable. That's what worship is, by the way. Ever wonder why we call it a worship service? It's service. It's labor. It's offering up spiritual sacrifices that somehow fill the sacrificer's heart with joy. Often it's a solemn joy. It doesn't always show up in in rousing applause and in cheers and in shouts and high-fives the way it shows up at a football field. Often it's it's quieter than that. It's more like the joy that you feel when your newborn falls asleep on your chest. And you just want to sit still and take it all in. That's verse 2, by the way, in this passage. It is that deep sigh, it is that heart sigh This is what I've been waiting for. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. (sighs) I shouldn't do that without a mask on. That's what this is. It's that contentment. Can you believe we've been longing for it? We've been looking for it. We've been called to it. Can you believe we're here? Oh, what joy in our hearts as we come into God's gates. I think we've found that to be true over the last several weeks. Our hearts are still heavy for those who aren't with us yet. And our fellowship is incomplete until our church is able to gather again together. And yet, for those of you who have been here, have you not felt the joy of being in the Lord's house? You know how it goes. It doesn't matter how important something is to us. If it is available all the time, we will find a way to take it for granted. And here we are. Never before in any of our lifetimes have Americans been told, you cannot gather for worship. And hasn't it been a breath of air to burning lungs just to sit, just to receive God's word in the company of his people? Hasn't it been a solemn joy to stand in silence together with 60 of your closest friends confessing your sins and knowing that they are confessing theirs as well and then to hear the gospel word of assurance of pardon through the blood of Jesus Christ? Doesn't it fill your heart with joy to come within the gates of Jerusalem? Hasn't the inconvenience of evening worship and the frustration of all the face masks, hasn't it all been worth it? Hasn't God's heavenly city put joy in your heart all over again? That's the first note of this psalm of God's city. It's a note of joy. The second note is is the sound of unity. Something happens in in verses 3 through 5 where it seems that that David is is shooting a shotgun rather than a rifle. It's scattershot. It seems to be going in many different directions, almost as though he's giving us the kind of factoids that you'd find uh, on the back of a travel brochure. Three fast facts about Jerusalem. Here's some things you might want to know. And we catalog them, and we think, all right, that's pretty random. But but in verse 3, David writes of the firmness of the city itself. Verse 4, he talks about the tribes that all go up. And then verse 5, by the way, there are some thrones for for judgment there for David and his sons. And they might seem random, but really they're not, of course. David is, is pushing in the direction of a single truth with all of these things, and that is to show us the unity of God's people. They really are just one people who come into one place to be united under one kingdom. They're gathered together. That's what it meant to be gathered together inside the gates of Jerusalem. It was to be united with other worshipers. Well, the older translations in verse 3 talk about Jerusalem as a city that is compacted together. That's the King James language. It's tight. It's, it's together. It was actually kind of the opposite of life in the Israelite villages. In the villages, life expanded as the population grew. On the North Shore, uh, the natives uh, joke that the streets of Gloucester are laid out like a drunk fisherman. It's pretty true. Uh, they, They go every which way, and to get from one side of the city to the other, it takes at least six streets to get there. And that happens in a lot of New England towns. It began as just one small little place to work or to fish, and suddenly other people came to work, and to fish, and, and house was added to house, and neighborhood was added to neighborhood, and, and cart paths became cobblestones, and cobblestones became uh, concrete, and pretty soon you can't find your way through one side to the other. And that's why the best cities are built with a plan, with a unity, a way that they work, a way that there is a place uh, for commerce, and there's a place worship and there's a place for protection and there's the, the city center there's a, a park, there's something, there's a flow to a city, there's a unity in the way that it works together, that's what the language here means, it's compacted together there's a purpose and a structure to all of it the Jewish Publication Society and their version of, of the Tanakh, the Old Testament they translate verse 3 as Jerusalem built up, a city knit together that's a good idea Many threads, but all of them working together to form one garment. It's compacted, it's knit, it's unified. Then in verse 4, David highlights the various tribes of Israel. And you can read the history books. You can read uh, Joshua and Judges and Kings and Chronicles and all the rest. And, And you can read them alongside uh, Jacob and his blessing of his 12 sons in Genesis 49. And when you do that, you realize that Israel was one family, but they were made up of many different people with many different temperaments and all kinds of different political affiliations and aspirations and, and all sorts of different ideas about what was good and how to go about getting what you needed in the world. You see that. There's a, there is a, uh, not a, a divisiveness but a diversity even within this family. And yet when David wrote this psalm, he was living at the time smack between the Judges and Jeroboam. He was living and reigning in between the statement at the end of Judges that this was a time that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Between that and the statement that uh, when the kingdom was divided, everybody said, every man to your tents, O Jerusalem. There was division, There uh, there was a scattering of the people, but David reigned in a time of unity such that when he stood in the capital city that he had claimed from the Jebusites, when he watched Israelites come in to the holy city from Dan to Beersheba, he didn't see cliques, he didn't see factions, he saw one people, the tribes of the Lord, the tribes of Yahweh, that's what he calls them, that's their unifying factor, they belong to Yahweh. And so if you were a worshiper in Jerusalem, if you belonged to Yahweh, it didn't matter whether you were from Issachar or Naphtali. It didn't matter if you raised sheep or whether you sold frankincense. It didn't matter how you pronounced Shibboleth. All that matters is if you belonged to Yahweh. If you belonged to Yahweh, it also meant that you belonged to his kingdom. It meant that you had security. You had justice underneath God's chosen king. That's the point of verse 5. And so without directly quoting God's promise of an everlasting dynasty, David is pointing out here that justice in the holy city and justice for God's people has been handed over to God's anointed savior, small s, the leader of the people. And so when widows and orphans were oppressed in the villages, there was a king who lived to protect the weak. When enemies laid violent hands on the inheritance of God's people, there was a warrior who rode out to fight on their behalf. And that's what these verses are showing us about the glories of the old Jerusalem. The city itself represented the unity of God's people. They were one people, one tribe, gathered in one place under the safety of one king. And it is this small-scale model that God gave the saints of Israel to teach them about the greater Jerusalem, the greater kingdom, the greater city that would be gathered together in the church of Christ. Could you imagine the conversations among the apostles if they ever talked about politics? There were only 12 Jewish men, pretty homogenous. And yet even among those 12, Jesus chose men who were Roman collaborators and Jewish restorationists and good old boys from Galilee. And he put them all together and he said, figure it out and make it work. Because it's bigger than you. It's bigger than your ideas. And the potential for division, the the potential for for splitting off into our our minute fractions only grew as the word went out. And it went to men and it went to women. It went to Greeks and it went to Jews. It went to Scythian and slave and, and barbarian and free. And Jesus takes all of his people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation and every language and he puts them into one people and into one body. And so in the church, it doesn't matter how much melanin you have in your skin. It doesn't matter if you're a New England Congregational or a Southern Presbyterian. It doesn't matter if you were born under communism or capitalism. It doesn't matter what continent your ancestors were from. It doesn't matter whether you pray with a thick accent. All that matters is if you belong to Jesus. All that matters is whether you've been united to him by faith in repentance. All that matters is whether you are guarded by him through his death and his resurrection. All that matters in the church is whether you have been made a part of God's kingdom through Jesus. Because in him there is one body. There is one flock, there is one household, there is one people. The New Testament says that it's one assembly. Here's that passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, tells New Testament believers that in the church, you have not come to what may be touched, to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and all of that was speaking uh, of Mount Sinai as emblematic of the old covenant under Moses. You have not come to what may be touched, it says. And then verse 22, but you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's what the scripture calls us. The assembly of the firstborn, the tribes of the Lord, one people, united in Christ. So this song of Jerusalem is a song of joy. It's a song of unity. It is, lastly, a song of prayer. This last section actually is, is the longest of this psalm, but it's the most straightforward. David is calling all those who love Jerusalem, all those who are excited to be a part of of this heavenly citizenry, he's calling us to action. He's calling us not to take up uh, weapons in our hands, but he's calling us to take up prayers in our lips. Remember, David is a mighty man, a warrior poet. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. David is a king. He knows strategy. He knows what it takes to protect a city. He knows what it takes to overthrow one. And so the weapon he encourages for us is prayer. Because he knows that the true peace and security of Jerusalem only comes from the God who keeps her. So he urges you, if you love Jerusalem, to pray for its peace. He urges God's people to pray that Jerusalem, and the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, the gathered church with a capital C, or churches with a small C, that the church would be the kind of place that sojourners with God in this world long for. What do we long for? Remember Psalm chapter 120, verses 6 and 7. Too long I've had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. I want shalom. I want calm, and I want peace contentedness and I I don't want strife or warfare. I am for peace says the psalmist but I live in this world that is all about war and they tend to twist my words and turn it into some sort of conflict and David's saying pray for Jerusalem that it would be the kind of place that sojourners long for. We live in this world filled with division and we long for the place where God's shalom would put our conflicts to bed We long for Jerusalem to be the place where fellow believers are not in competition with one another. When we're not worried about who's more righteous or who's better established. When we're not worried about comparing ourselves to believers who have fallen into sin and now their whole life is upside down. We long for Jerusalem to be the place where socially awkward people are enfolded and loved in the family of God. We long for Jerusalem to be the place where the peace of Christ quiets our guilt and our self-accusation. The place where the blood of Jesus proclaims eternal peace and security and shalom to those who believe in the good news of salvation. We long for the church. We long for God's heavenly city to be the place where even the unbelieving world would see Christians caring for one another, and then it might make them stop and say, wow, can you believe that? For once, they're not not engaged in a bunch of infighting. They're not throwing darts across the aisle at one another. Can you believe how these people who have so little in common in the sense of the world actually care for one another so much? We long for the church to be a place like that, where unbelievers, where the world would look in and say, look how they love one another. Look how they bear one another's burdens. Can you believe the way that they have peace with one another? That's what we long for. We long for a heavenly citizenship that brings glory to God through the peace of his people. If we could use the language of longing, with respect to Christ, I think that's what our Savior longs for as well. He told his disciples in the upper room, John chapter 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another, if you are at peace with one another, if you care for one another, if you bear with one another in your burdens, if you have love for one another, he says. But then later in that same upper room, Christ modeled the prayer for the peace of Jerusalem. Later in chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prays this. He says, I do not ask for these only, the apostles, that is. I do not ask for these only, but also for all those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It doesn't take a whole lot of work to apply the meaning of Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of the church. Pray it for your brothers and your companions' sake. Pray it for the sake of the house of the Lord, Pray it that the Lord would work peace and unity and joy in His people so that others would look in and say, Can you believe what they have over there? And I wish I knew what it was like to be a member of a citizenship like that. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord our God, we pray you would give peace to your people. We Thank you that as your word tells us, you indeed are our peace. You've broken down walls of hostility between believer and believer. You've made us one body in Christ, one person, one new man in place of the two, even between Jew and Gentile. Lord, you have given us peace with the Father through the blood of your cross. O Lord, we pray that you would give peace and unity to your church in our days and set our minds and our hearts on the day when we will be fully at peace in your presence. We will be ushered into that new Jerusalem, that heavenly city. We will enter into those gates and stand before your presence and sing your praises with the company of your people, a great multitude that no one can number. We'll stand in peace before you. O Lord, make it so. Help us to love being in your house and in your city. Help us to long and to pray for the peace of your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters in Christ, hear God's good word for you, his benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. aware of any new announcements uh, recently, so I would simply remind you of the offering box that is on your way out. Uh, If you forgot your offering, consistently forget your offering here, you can still send it to David. You can send it to his home address, you can send it to our office care of David Joe, and it will make its way there eventually, Uh, but please do remember uh, to continue to be faithful to to provide uh, for the work of our church uh, and to give your tithes and your offerings unto the Lord. This is an act of worship. It's one of the things that, uh, that normally fits between the call to worship.